Well, if you have Hebrews chapter 8, if you'd please open there. And Dr. Blaylock asked me to mention a couple of things uh, just about our ministry. And we're in south, south Florida, and so south of here. How many of y'all are from further south than this originally? How many of y'all moved up here? Yeah, a lot of you. A lot of you. seems like uh, this area and Ocala have all of the former Fort Lauderdale and Miami folks uh, that have all moved, migrated further and further north. Do you lose them to north, too? Do they go north from here? Is this the... So, really? Yeah, isn't that terrible? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, we, uh, my wife, where, there she is, Melissa, sitting back with the Miller family. Uh, hi, Al. Al can't see me as cataracts, but uh, I'm over here. <laughs> I miss saying that to you on Sunday nights. <laughs> Uh, but uh, my, my wife Melissa is sitting uh, in the middle row uh, with the Miller family, and uh, she's my partner in ministry, and uh, we're church planters. We started Fort Lauderdale Baptist Church back in 2006. First, we really uh, came down before 2000, and my wife had actually been here earlier than that, worked at the summer day camp in West Park Baptist Church in Delray Beach. And... Uh, I met her there, and I was hired in 2000 as assistant pastor, and so we worked there a few years, and really the Lord burdened us in particular about church planting in southeast Florida. I'd always thought I was going to plant a church in the Midwest somewhere and kind of trained and prepared for that, but the numbers in our area were just like no place I had seen before that, and uh, by that I mean the numbers of independent Baptist churches versus just the densely populated areas. And uh, you start adding up, your pastor would know most of the independent Baptist churches in the Tri-County area and all the way down into the, even including the Florida Keys. And you start adding up those numbers, you are in the millions upon millions of people, and your, your churches are in the tens. And uh, if, if the churches numbered a million apiece, we'd be doing all right. But the problem is, is that this is probably the largest independent Baptist church in southeast Florida, as far as I'm aware, or right about that. And so we've always been burdened about planting churches, not trying to plant huge churches, but many churches. I like the Walgreens idea where there's a church on every corner in every neighborhood and, and uh, just trying to reach the community. And so out of our church, Fort Lauderdale Baptist Church, we haven't planted every single one, but we have planted three, and then our marathon church has planted one now down in Key West, Southernmost Baptist Church. So we have four total church plants from 2006 until now. And uh, we still have Miami Beach Baptist Church under the ministry of Fort Lauderdale Baptist Church. That's been our slowest one to become independent. And so it actually took a number of years until I even found a staff pastor for that church. Melissa, was it uh, seven years that we held services there? Brother Al used to go down on Thursday nights and lead the singing for us and uh, but we've been holding services in Miami Beach since 2014. I guess I can do the math. That's almost nine years, isn't it? Uh, but last two years I've had an assistant, and the Lord willing, we're planning to ordain him uh, this summer. And the church is still not at a place of being financially independent from us yet. And my wife and I have continually gone to two churches a week. So a normal Sunday for us, this is kind of like a vacation for us today because I skipped going to Miami Beach this afternoon and just came up here for the evening service. And I always do an evening service in Fort Lauderdale. 
And so I'm kind of goofing off just a little bit here this evening. So thank you for inviting me. I enjoy the, the vacation. But we've been doing that for a number of years. And um, folks have asked me, what's it like to go to uh, two churches on Sunday? So we, we do Sunday school and Sunday morning on, sun, on Sunday mornings in the a.m. in Fort Lauderdale. And then we have afternoon services at 2.30 uh, a 2.30 worship service and then a 3.30 Sunday school. And then uh, they have a 6 p.m. service, but we come back to Fort Lauderdale for our 6 p.m. service. So that's what our Sundays normally look like. And I think that if ever I didn't get to go down to Miami Beach, uh, I'd just start another church because <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do in the afternoons. And it really is, a, is the way to go. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Your pastor, in my opinion, is the best preacher in Southeast Florida. I've always thought that ever since the first time I heard him preach. Uh, brother, more than 20 years ago, right? I think so. I heard him preach more than 20 years ago the first time, and I've always loved to hear him preach. I check, uh, tune in, and I listen to him different ways sometimes. Brother Al calls me uh, sometimes during the week when I answer the phone, and he tells me what pastor preached as well. And I just love uh, that this ministry is here. I wish that this church were all over America, and uh, you just really have got it made. Um, there are some distinctives about a church like this that perhaps you're very aware of or some things that you just agree with and maybe you haven't thought them through very clearly. One of those things is this is a Baptist church. And I'm Baptist. I'm not Baptist uh, because of behavior or uh, denomination. I'm Baptist because of, of what I believe. And um, being Baptist is doctrinal. It's not denominational. I like to say that Baptists were... Uh, non-denominational before it was cool and uh, they just got called Baptist and it's accurate we do baptize and so we accept the term I think that there perhaps are people that believe the same things as Baptists do but they don't they just don't know they're Baptist and so um, I, you know that and that's that's all right but it, you know it's it the if it, the name fits or the term fits wear it and that's the way I feel about it and I think that every church, if it's a good church, is a Baptist church. And the reason for that is because, like I mentioned, what we believe about the Bible and what we believe about the Great Commission. Most people that have gotten saved have been saved because of Baptist churches. Um, now, that's not just my nuanced experience, but the truth is I meet people that don't go to Baptist churches all the time that tell me about getting saved uh, through somebody in a Baptist church or because of a Baptist church preaching the gospel. Uh, to them and preaching salvation to them. And so I think that knowing what it means to be Baptist is important, and uh, I think that it's important not to stray from truth and the doctrinal things that, that cause us uh, to identify ourselves that way. Every now and again, though, not every now and again, always, always there's an onslaught of regurgitated doctrine. There's no new doctrine. There's really nothing new under the sun. You can look at anything, any false teaching uh, that has been taught at, it is being taught at any time, and you can find where it was taught before in history, and usually you can find it in the first century by reading your scripture and find that people believe the same things. One of the things that has resurged and is a major concern to me, and this perhaps is not what you'd want to uh, or expect for a message on a Sunday night, but something that has infiltrated Baptist churches, and particularly independent Baptist churches, 
uh, in the last 10 years and kind of made some inroads, which is concerning to me, is the matter of covenant theology. Covenant theology. And uh, a covenant, we know what a covenant is. A covenant is a, is a promise, but it's more than just a promise. It's a promise with uh, ramifications if the covenant is broken. And we understand, I think, from reading the scripture that God made a covenant with the nation of Israel, made a promise with the nation of Israel. And that first covenant that God made with the nation of Israel had conditions. And God has said, if you do these things, Israel made an agreement, they're going to, they're going to be under God's law, and it's going to be their national legal system, and they're going to keep God's covenants. And if they keep God's covenants, the blessings and the promises that God said would happen for them as a nation would be guaranteed. And there are some pretty neat things, uh, like rain. <laughs> uh, early and latter rain in an agricultural society, that's a big deal. My dad's a Kansas farmer, and I believe he planted soybeans last week. He was waiting for it to rain so he could plant because the ground was too dry to plant. And one of the things that he would love would be if he were to plant, and the next day or two it were to rain. That would be the best thing in the world for the crop. And before the harvest time comes, if, it, if they have a good late rain where the uh, seeds really fill out in, the, in, the, in, in either the wheat or in the, in the soybeans in the kernels uh, or in the pods, that's a wonderful thing for having a good crop. And the nation of Israel had to deal with God that if they kept his law and they didn't worship idols and they didn't break his commandments, that they'd always have a bumper crop. They had one that I like, and that was that every seven years they didn't have to plant. They just could take the year off, and God would just provide for them, and they'd be as well off as they would be uh, if they had planted. And then they had something that we even have something better in the church age. They had the Sabbath, and they weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, and, and God made it so that even though they didn't work on the Sabbath, he provided for them. And they were just as well off as they would be without. Now, we have the Lord's Day in addition to the Sabbath. And so the, the five-day work week is a Christian concept. And I just love it when I see Christians determine that they're going to honor the Lord by worshiping on the Lord's Day and then keeping the Sabbath and then just watching God take care of them just as though they were working. And just those are, that's just the way God is. But these are guaranteed promises. Of course, there's a lot more to it than that. But when we read our text here in Hebrews, I, I'm an expository preacher, and, and I just want to confess that this is difficult for me. So I, so I should have preached all the way up to here, and now we're going to preach about uh, something that's very important. But here we find the Holy Spirit, who is the author of Hebrews. You might know that it's Paul or Barnabas or someone else, but the Holy Spirit gave us Hebrews, and I believe that uh, God made the author invisible so that Jesus Christ could really be exalted in this book because he is taught as superior to everything that a first century Christian would go back into Judaism for. And so this is a very, very difficult time written right before the ransacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And uh, the Christians in Jerusalem are being roundly persecuted, terribly persecuted to death. Uh, because of their faith, and then being Jewish was, was very uh, dangerous as well. The Roman Empire was really starting to tighten the death grip on them. It's very near to the time that all the Jews would be, that, that the city would be burned and all the Jews would be pushed out and not allowed to live in Jerusalem ever, or in Jerusalem anymore. 
And so it's a very difficult time to be Jewish. And then on top of that, compounding that, if you were a Jewish Christian, not only did, was the world against you, but your own family, the people that you turned to for refuge, would cast you out and push you away. And by the way, that's still true today. I have friends that when they were teenagers, confessed Christ, they, be, they became believers, went home and told their Jewish parents, and their parents said, you're no longer my son. And literally from that day forward, their family would never speak to them ever again. Now, that's, those are in what we would think would be healthy, loving families. So if you can imagine your best relationships, everything's against you. And then on top of that, the people you're closest to have turned against you. And what has happened is that the believers, because of the difficult times, they've started to go back. They've started to go back into Judaism. They've gone back to their families. They've stopped talking about being a Christian. They've stopped witnessing. They've stopped telling their families about Jesus and the work that the Holy Spirit had done in their life since they were born again. And uh, they were caving to the pressure to participate in Judaism. And so they would go back into the temple and go into those rituals where God wasn't. Today, my friend, I don't mean to speak this unkindly, but today God isn't in Judaism. Uh, Judaism is a dead man-made religion, man religion today. It's not biblical Judaism. It's not what Jews were to believe. And the reason for that is because of the new covenant. That was lengthy, and I'm sorry for that. The people in our church would say, well, pastor, that was, that was a pretty quick introduction to the text. Uh, but I, I jumped over a bunch of things. And so I want to talk this evening about something that I think every Christian should know, and you should be equipped to handle. Uh, if you are in discussion with somebody and they begin to tell you things about the nation of Israel that are, one, either anti-Semitic, there's a lot of hatred in Baptist churches today toward God's people, the Jews, and it's very prolific on the internet. And if you listen to preaching in different places, you may find like some shocking things said about God's people, according to the flesh, the Jews, unsaved Jews, the nation of Israel. And the people that are saying those things, claiming to be, I'm not saying they're not Baptists, but they're wrong about this. Uh, the people saying those things are very, very hateful, and, and what they're saying is harmful to the gospel. It's harmful to the cause of Christ. And you and I should know why what they say is wrong. Those people, incidentally, are, by and large, uh, mid-trib rapture components. They believe in the rapture. Uh, halfway through the tribulation period. And so they're off on their eschatology as well. And so I just want to address one passage of Scripture that every believer should know. And it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, but the passage quoted in Hebrews chapter 8 is Jeremiah chapter 31. Could you go back in your Old Testament, please, to Jeremiah chapter 31? If you look down at verse 31, and by the way, it's pretty easy to remember, right? Jeremiah 31, 31. So 31, 31, too bad it's not a caliber or a uh, um, cubic inches of a Harley Davidson or something, but it'd be too small if it were. But hopefully you can remember Jeremiah 31, 31, because this is the scripture which is quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was in and, and husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Now stop here and let's just talk about the first covenant briefly. Now we said a covenant is a promise. It was a promise entered into between God and man. In, in particular, when you, read the, when you read Genesis, you'll see that God made a covenant with Abraham and then God made a covenant with Isaac. God made a covenant with Jacob and God also made a covenant with David. And all of these promises are, would fit into what we would call the Abrahamic covenant. And they had to do with national Israel. I don't want to bore you this evening, but individuals who believe in covenant theology basically only believe in one covenant. But they believe in progressive dispensation. In other words, and again, these are just words, to dispense means to give out and to, get, you know, to give out at a different time. And so progressive dispensationalists would be a person that believes that at different times, people, God, people were saved different ways. Now, God has worked in different ways at different times, hasn't he? During the time that God's law was given to the nation of Israel, and before the time of the new covenant, God was working with whom and through whom? Through the Jews, God's people, the nation of Israel. And everyone was invited to be part of that. God has never excluded anyone. So while God was working through the Jews, you could come to God, and you could come to God through the Jews. And that's always been the case, and you came by faith. That's how Abraham got saved, even before Moses' law was given. And you could read Romans 4 and 5 about that. But before salvation, or before Jesus died on the cross, people were saved by faith. And when Abraham believed God, the Bible said, and this is before Moses' law was given, this is before Abraham was circumcised, the Bible said he believed God and his faith was counted to him for righteousness. And so salvation's always been by faith. Now, people with covenant theology believe in salvation normally by faith, but they don't believe in the difference between Israel and the church. They just the same. It's just kind of the Israel has morphed into the church. They don't believe in the church age. They don't believe that we're in a different time than before Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law. And so... What I want us to see here is, first of all, that the Bible says, it plainly indicates, not only in Malachi, where God says that he's going to divorce his people or put them aside, and even though God hates putting away, but the Bible very plainly indicates that the first covenant was going to be annulled, or the first covenant was going to come to an end. So the argument is made to the Hebrew Christians, as those individuals undergoing persecution, for many reasons that they ought not go back into Judaism, but the first reason is that you can't go back into something that no longer exists. In other words, you, if you go back into Israel, you go back to a temple where God's not in the holy place. You go back to a priesthood where the priest stands daily offering a sacrifice for himself and for others, and for a while because of what that represented in Jesus Christ being our ultimate high priest, God accepted that. But the difference is you go back from having a priest in heaven who with his own blood entered into the throne room of God and offered not just for himself, but offered for his people. Jesus didn't need a blood sacrifice for himself because he was sinless. So we have a superior high priest in heaven, Jesus Christ. 
So you would go from a covenant where you have Jesus in heaven making it possible so that when we open our service this evening, a man stands up and says, God, and God hears us. Instead of having to go through a process or a go-between and offer sacrifices, we have a once-for-all sacrifice, and we can go instantly into the throne room in the presence of God. So to go back into the first covenant would be to go away from something which is better in every way and go to something which is inferior to that. That's the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. But not only that, but if God is not working through the old covenant anymore, it's not any good. So the problem with our friends who uh, teach covenant theology, or first covenant theology we could call it, is that they believe in going back into the first covenant. Now there's a lot of iterations of it, some better, some worse than others, some more anti-Semitic, some more hateful. But another one of the groups that really struggles with this covenant theology is the Messianic Judaism crowd. Group of individuals that say we're part of the church age, we're Christian, but then they go and worship as though they're Jewish. And again, they're going back to a system of worship that God is not working in. God is not endorsing. Why is that? Because Christ established his church. And it is the church that the gospel is going forth through. It is the church that God is using in this day and in this age. And so the question is, did God promise a new covenant? And the answer is, resoundingly, yes, he did. And so, uh, so first of all, we see the promise of the new covenant here in Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house and with the house of Judah. Now, this is interesting because Jeremiah is primarily prophesying to Judah because the other ten tribes which have become Ephraim or Israel are so far gone from keeping God's word and God's law and having any concern about that, uh, that you would almost think those individuals will never come back to God. And yet God is saying there's going to come a time when every person who is a descendant of Jacob, Israel, is going to, I'm going to make a new covenant with them. Now I want to ask you the question, has that happened yet? And it's a little bit of a trick question because the answer is, well, the scripture indicates that it's begun to happen or it's at least partially happened. And so we're in a time of the new covenant. So did God promise a new covenant? The answer is yes. Where did God promise a new covenant? Jeremiah 31, 31. There's a lot more there where God is talking about the nation of Israel. But he gives some specifics about that new covenant. And uh, I want to look at some of the benefits of that new covenant. Um, Joel alludes to it in Joel chapter 2. But let's don't go there. Let's go to Joel quoted in Acts chapter 2 uh, very briefly. Uh, Andy told me that, that I'm supposed to be done by 730. Um, According to that clock, I have an hour, if I'm looking with Al's eyes. Okay. <laughs> it's been a while since I've had a chance to get at you like this. So, Acts chapter 2. <laughs> Look down at verse, verse uh, 16. This is Peter standing up and and uh, preaching the greatest sermon ever preached. He said in verse 16, But this is that which is, was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. 
And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, uh, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and with wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, I, I wish I could read all the way through this, all the way to their being pricked with their heart and saying, men and brethren, what shall we do? But what Peter is here preaching is that that prophecy that God is going to work again through national Israel with the new covenant, what has happened here at Pentecost where nine different people groups can understand what we're saying in their own language wherein they were born, this is what was prophesied in Joel. It's come to pass. And so here Peter indicates that this is the new covenant. This is the new covenant. Uh, my New Testament in the original language is Hykanidiatheke, which means the book of the new covenant or the new covenant. And uh, that's the New Testament. Uh, covenant and testament are the same word. They're, uh, they, of course, are enacted upon the will. And the new covenant technically was, was given full strength of force when Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross. And so this is the day and age in which we live. God's not working through Israel today. But the question that I asked was a little bit, I said, of a trick question, because the question is, are we in the new covenant today? Has the new covenant been fulfilled? Has it begun? And the answer is, yes, it has. But there are also clearly things in Jeremiah 31 that are indicated which have not yet taken place. It has not yet come to pass that the ten tribes of Israel and the two tribes of Judah have come back together in faith before God as a nation. And when will that take place? Well, that will take place after the seven years of tribulation, that final week in Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy that there is one week left, so it's divided in Revelation and in other portions of the Scripture indicated into two periods of three and a half years. And I don't want to get, get into, uh, into prophecy right now because... Because of time, because Andy said 7.30. But um, it's important for us to understand that there are things that are part of the new covenant that pertain to the nation of Israel, which God is going to do. Well, you go back to Hebrews chapter 8, and let's look at some of those things in particular. So parts of the new covenant would be that the Holy Spirit would come in fullness of power. And friend, that part of the new covenant is fulfilled. And by the way, the power of God's Spirit is not diminished today one iota from what it was in the first century. You know, so many people think that the Holy Spirit isn't working today because of the matter of prophecy and the matter of tongues having ceased. But the reason for the cessation of prophecy in tongues is because that which was in part, uh, it was taken away because that which is perfect has come. And what is perfect is the New Testament, the New Covenant, the Word of God. We have a perfect book. And so I don't need prophecy. In the last two weeks, I've had individuals, I'm sure Brother Blaylock, I don't know if you have somebody screen this, but they come right to me. But I've had phone calls with people that uh, have called me saying that God gave them a message for me. Anybody ever tell you something like that? And I just, I, I, the older I get, I guess the more of a curmudgeon I get and less polite I am about things. Some of you say, well, you're never polite, Pastor Price. Well, 
I, I used to try. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but in nowadays, somebody tells me that they have a message or they tell me that they're a prophet or that they're an apostle. And I just, if they tell me they're an apostle, I say, no, you're not. And I just, I just, the niceties just aren't there for me anymore. And I'll tell them, you're not, a, you're not an apostle. You're not an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You're a liar. And uh, then, so a lady called me, uh, I think a week ago, right before staff meeting, and told me she had a message to, from, to me from God. And I inquired about that. Why did God give you a message? Why won't he tell me? Why is he telling you? Why is he talking to you? How do you know it's true? How do you know it's not a liar? And all these things. But ultimately, she said, well, don't you want to hear the message? And I said, no, I don't. And the reason is because I've got a book and I have the Holy Spirit. I don't need a message. Now, I'm not saying I'm not, I can't hear something from someone. I love to sit under the preaching of the Word of God. I love wise counsel from people that are under the authority of the Scripture. But if somebody's going to tell me that something is missing in my Bible and they're there to bring it to me, my friend, that's not the truth. In the New Covenant, we have the complete Word of God, and this is one of the great benefits of the New Covenant. One of the things we should know, one of the things we need to understand is important, not only that the New Covenant was prophesied, but we have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God. Those are two things that are involved in the New Covenant that we have. And a person who believes in covenant theology, that is, we're still in the first covenant that God made and God has replaced Israel with the church, individuals that believe that, my friend, have undermined those truths. And those are vital truths. Those are truths that we cannot have undermined and we cannot accept the undermining of. It's an inconsistency in their doctrine. If they complain, if they, um, if they claim that they are under the authority of the Scripture. So now you've gone to Hebrews chapter 8, and I haven't yet, so let me find myself there. Now let's look at our text again. So parts of the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit, the prophecy, and uh, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 47, if we were to read it all the way to the end of the text we were in a moment, a moment ago, we would see the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So we'd see that the church is part of that New Covenant. Of course, Jesus Christ ordained that, and he had said, this rock of me, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so that, at that moment, the church was in its planning stages. It was just like before you had this building. It was drawn up on paper and it was given and it existed, but it wasn't functioning yet. It didn't belong yet. And so then uh, when the power of the Holy Spirit came on those apostles on the day of Pentecost, they were a praying church before that, but they weren't a Holy Spirit-empowered church. But the full force of effect of the church came into power there in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And my friend, that's the new covenant. And we're in it, and we're involved in it. And let me just say it again, because it excites me to say so, it's not diminished. People get saved today just as much as they ever do. You say, Pastor, you ever preached and had 5,000 souls saved at the same time? I'm going to tell you this. I've been alive on many days that around the world 5,000 people have gotten saved on that day. Do you know how many people got up today and bowed before God and worshipped Him and churches met all around the world today and people came forward and preached Christ and got saved? You know how many people got baptized today? around the world. I promise you, God knows the number, and I'm not even concerned about trying to know it, but I promise you it's more than 5,000 souls. The power of the Holy Spirit is not diminished one iota. And that is one of the benefits of the new covenant. It should excite us, and we should push back hard, and we should uh, test the ideology that undermines the church, because that is the vital force of the new covenant. And so uh, I want to look at the future fulfillment of the, of the new covenant. I mentioned Daniel chapter 9, that final week uh, that is in Revelation, that the seven years of tribulation. And again, that, that isn't the message today. But let's look down in chapter 10 of Hebrews chapter 8 now. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. 
I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Now this positively thrills my soul. And this is where the gloom and doom uh, individuals that try to tell me, oh, things are, you know, things are getting worse and things are not better. No, my friend, from the time that the Jesus, or from the time that God promised that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head, the prophecy of the virgin birth of the Messiah, from that time forward, things have progressively got better and better for mankind with regard to God's working in the world. The truth of the matter is that there's going to come a time when we're going to see Jesus come in the sky and all the bodies of the saints which weren't resurrected when Jesus uh, gave up the ghost on the cross and took led captivity captive from paradise. All those bodies which since then have gone into the ground of believing saints, they're going to come out of the graves and we're going up with them to meet the Lord with the air. We'll never be separated from Jesus ever again. We'll always be with him. It's already true that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so things are just going to get better and better and better. But after this time when God judges the earth during the seven years of tribulation and terrible things befall the wicked who have rebelled against God, unbelieving Israel who violated the first covenant and still have not turned to God in the new covenant. They're going to be individuals, 144,000 of whom receive the mark of God in their forehead. By the way, Christian, talk about the mark of God. Don't bore me with the mark of the beast. First of all, the mark of God comes first. God marks all his people before the beast ever does, first of all. And so talk about the mark of God. That's the, that's the point in Revelation. They take the mark of God in their forehead to be saved. You can never be lost. Eternal security is always the same. Salvation is always the same. But the church is removed from the world at that time. And so those are believing Jews. 12,000 of the 12 tribes, 144,000 of them in Revelation believe. And now this important thing happens that literally nationally the people know the Lord. Now here's something else that's unique, something else that's neat. At that time, no one's going to have to say, here's who God is to their children or to their brother. And the reason is, at that time, everyone will have seen Jesus in the clouds. I get tired of rapture stuff, too. I sound like I'm really tired of a lot of things tonight. I'm a happy guy, trust me. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, you just hear so many stories of the rapture, you know, the, the church just vanishes and nobody knows. Where's Jesus coming? In the, is he going to come invisibly? No, he's going to come in. He's going to be in the clouds. The suddenness of the rapture is going to be like the blink of an eye. But the world's going to know where all the Christians went. All the Christians went. They're going to see the bodies coming out of the graves. We're not going to become invisible when we go up to see Jesus. We're going to do it in a very visible way. And there he'll be. And every eye is going to see him. And everybody's going to know him. Who he is. Nobody's going to say that's who God is. Because everyone will have seen him with their own eyes. There's a point in the midpoint of the tribulation where the sky is ripped back. And God begins to do things directly. In his wrath on the earth. And nobody's saying, wonder where the hail came from. Wonder where the sea turned to blood. Nobody's wondering about anything because they know who God is. And here are individuals who have not just known who God is, but in their hearts they've turned to him in their belief. By the way, no one, no one is an unbeliever because they don't know. Everyone's an unbeliever because they don't believe. And there's a difference. 
There, there's, there isn't anyone that doesn't know in their heart the Godhead, the Bible says, who God is. And there isn't anyone that doesn't have access by the help of the Holy Spirit to the Word of God and the truth of the Scripture. And so in this day and time, though, nobody's going to say, here's who God is. You've never seen Him. You've never heard Him. But here's who He is. No, everyone will have seen Him. And they'll know the Lord. And so that part of the, of the New Covenant, that's not finished yet. We're still in it. We're still, we're still in that. But that part is specifically dealing with whom? National Israel. Not just the church, not just that uh, what we see develop in Acts as we see the church begin at Jerusalem, spread through Judea, and then ultimately become a Gentile church and grow into something that has an identity with Jesus more so than with Judaism. And so that's the new covenant. So there is a future fulfillment of the new covenant. Verse 10 of, of, of chapter 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of... Nine minutes. The house of Israel... After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Now, does that sound like, does that sound like the children of Israel? That's what it was. It's what it was in, Hebrew, or in Jeremiah 31, if you read about it. It's a nation of Israel. And the Bible says in, in verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities... Will I remember no more? Let's wrap things up. Let's conclude things. I feel like I've done a lot of racing along and, you know, kind of swiping at things, but not necessarily covering them well. Pastor can fix this message next week. (laughs) He can do damage control. Uh, And it wouldn't hurt my feelings either. Verse 13, and that he saith a new covenant. Verse 13, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Okay, so are we in the first covenant today? The answer is no. It's, it's, it's gotten old and it's vanished away. Chapter 9 deals with the superiority of Christ to the old covenant, to the first covenant. You could read all the way to chapter 10 uh, of Hebrews, which deals with that. But I want us to understand something. I want us to know that the old covenant is expired, and today we're living in a new covenant. And new sounds good, right? Some of you uh, are like me and it wouldn't hurt you to have a new car or a new house or a new suit or new whatever it is. You know, new is kind of a good thing at times. Um, I won't ramble. I was about to use some more illustrations. My wife just looked at me like, you better not ramble. So she really didn't. I, I've gotten, I got in trouble last week, Sunday night. I said the word idiot in church. And I try not to say stupid or idiot uh, in church. I just did. But I defended myself when I said idiot. I said, you know, it comes from the Greek word, idios, idioma, of oneself, of one's own. It's where we get into syncretic with it. I started. And then when I got home, she said, I just laughed. I didn't say anything. I was just laughing when you said idiot. So I got in trouble for, <laughs> for saying something. Um, but I've set the record straight. The whole world knows my wife is fine with me saying idiot. Okay? So... <laughs> All right. We've always liked each other. In that he saith the new covenant made the first old. Okay, so I want us to remember not only is the old covenant expired, but I want us to emphasize the fact that we're living in the new covenant and there's still a better future. There's still more to be fulfilled. And the wonderful thing about that is God isn't finished working. God is working now. And if you will do the Lord's work, you'll see the results from it. 
Because God is literally long-suffering and holding back in this new covenant age. Not willing, Second Peter says, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance so that we can do the work. And so Christians, don't get in this hunker-down mentality where you just try to make it until the grave because things are so bad. Friend, things are better than they have ever been, and they're going to get better from here. And that is one of the great benefits of understanding that we live in the new covenant. And so if someone approaches you and tries to come up with this whole, you know, God hates the Jews and they were, you know, all these nasty things that they actually say today because they've replaced Israel with the church, your answer to them needs to be, no, no, no. We're in the new covenant and God has a plan for Israel in the new covenant. And that's in Jeremiah 30, 31, 31. And in Hebrews chapter 8, and I hope you'll remember that. I'll let Pastor finish up the service this evening. Amen. Let's bow our heads together, shall we? I'm very glad he preached this, and I'm also glad it's archived so the folks can hear it and listen to it. There are a lot of assaults on the local church, New Testament churches today, that are trying to make what God has done through the local church for 2,000 years now, sort of reversed, and this is one of them. And so we were just talking about this, fellow preachers of mine, um, some of the guys here in the church, we were just talking about this danger that's spreading um, in a lot of churches and a lot of Christian circles today. And so I appreciate that, Brother Price. I really do, that you listen to the Lord. And I'm, as I said, I'm glad it's archived so that you can listen to it again, so that you can understand what it means that God is working through local New Testament churches today. And especially the positive aspect, the, the encouragement that I received from the optimism, which is what we have as New Testament believers in the world today. Pastor Vladek, I'm saved tonight, but I needed this message. God has spoken to my heart about something with heads bowed. Who would say that? Would you lift your hands? God bless you. Wow, a lot of hands shot up even before I... I finish asking. And it's entirely possible that somebody here tonight watching by live stream maybe in this room has never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. And you say, Pastor, that's me. I'm not sure I'm saved. Would you pray for me that I could be sure? Anyone like that, would you lift your hand if you're not sure about your salvation tonight? We're going to pray in a moment and have a time of invitation. It's I Surrender All. We'll sing it together. The altar's here. If there's something the Lord is specifically speaking to you about, I hope you'll use it. And... If you're not sure you're saved, come forward. We'll show you how to be sure. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for Pastor Price coming tonight and, and pouring out his heart, Lord, in this message, reminding us of the blessings, the glory, really the price, Jesus' own blood of the new covenant. And in a time and a place when, as it's happened in the past, there are those who would try to steal that away. Help us to cherish it. Help us, Lord, to be grateful that you and your great wisdom gave us the New Testament church. The New Testament church and all the blessings that go along with it. May we, in our embracing it, Lord, continue to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. Bless the invitation of those who've asked for prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, 
please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.